from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up as Democrats continue to call for a delay in the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says his Democratic colleagues are upset about the prospects of a justice, Amy Coney Barrett, because they, quote, believe in declarative government, not representative government. Senator Kennedy joins us in just a moment. Is the Chinese Communist Party responsible for President Trump contracting the coronavirus? Asian expert Gordon Chang says yes. He's here to explain. Also, in a David versus Goliath-sized battle, the pastor of a small Virginia church, along with three lay members of another church, took on Virginia Governor Ralph Northam and won a victory for churches all over the state. Pastor Brian Hermsmeyer of Slate Mills Church joins us later. And as I mentioned yesterday, we're broadcasting Washington Watch today from Plymouth, Massachusetts, as I'll be joining Pastor Carter Conlon of Times Square Church, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Congresswoman and presidential candidate Michelle Bachman, and others tonight for a special broadcast here in Plymouth, as this year marks the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing. Local pastor and historian Paul Jaley joins us to explain the significance of this anniversary. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parler, it is at T. Perkins. And uh, let me remind you, not only can you join the event tonight, go to TonyPerkins.com or you can go to my Facebook page, uh, but also next Sunday night, Freedom Sunday, we'll be holding a um, Freedom Sunday worship service next Sunday night in California. Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. You won't want to miss that. It's time. It's time. Go to freedomsunday2020.org for more information. All right, with the coronavirus making its way into Congress, and specifically the Senate Judiciary Committee, many Democrats are using this as yet another opportunity to call for a halt to the confirmation process of Judge Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court. This is what Senator Schumer had to say over the weekend. We are demanding today, along with millions of Americans and many, many groups, that the hearings be postponed. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell responded saying this. The Democrats have told everyone out loud about their real intentions. For weeks now, numerous Senate Democrats have publicly promised they would try every trick in the book, every trick in the book, every maneuver available to obstruct and delay a fair confirmation process. Joining me now to talk about this is Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. He serves as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tony. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Good to have you on the program. Good to talk with you again. Let me let me ask you this question. Um, you said that the, the, the issue here is that uh, some of your Democratic colleagues um, what they want is declarative government, not representative government. What is it that they dislike about Amy Coney Barrett, or is it the fact that this is a justice that will stick to the Constitution? They, they, uh, they just don't like Judge Barrett because of her judicial philosophy, as you pointed out, Tony. Many of my Democratic colleagues... Um, including uh, Senator Schumer, believe that the United States Supreme Court should be sort of a mini-Congress. When they can't pass a bill in the real Congress, they think they ought to be able to go to the Supreme Court comprised of unelected folks who are there for life and uh, be able to prosecute their social agenda. And that's, as you well know, uh, is not what our founders intended. The law is not supposed to be politics practiced a different way. Our, our members of the United States Supreme Court are not supposed to be politicians in robes. They are not supposed to uh, re- try to rewrite the Constitution every other Thursday to advance a, a social agenda that they can't get by the voters. And unfortunately... In my opinion, um, that that's what many, not all, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but many of my Democratic colleagues want. And they're upset with uh, 
with Judge Barrett because they know that she understands the proper role of the judiciary in our Madisonian system of uh, of separation of powers and checks and balances. Well, Senator Kennedy, if I could just add, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I'm sorry, Tony, to interrupt you. I just would like to add they certainly can't quarrel with her qualifications. I mean, mm-hmm. she's an honors graduate of Rhodes College, an honors graduate of Notre Dame Law School. She's an esteemed law professor. She's a m- member of the Federal Seventh Circuit. I've been reading this week many of her law review articles and her opinions. Um, I mean, she's uh, she's brilliant. I mean, in, in defense uh, of your Democratic colleagues, um, they're actually uh-huh. just representing the left. That's what the left wants. The left wants the court to do their legislative bidding because they know they can't get it through Congress. They can't get it through the people. And so the only way, if you look at most of their big ticket social items, as you mentioned, abortion, with redefinition of marriage, whatever it is, gun control, almost all of that comes exclusively through the courts. Yes. And there's been a disturbing trend, as you well know, in the last probably, I don't know, 50 years in America to move uh, from representative government to declarative government. And by that, I mean, uh, we are a democratic republic. Power rests with the people. The people uh exercise that power by electing representatives and unelecting representatives, let's say to Congress, if they don't represent the people as the people want. But in the last 50 years, there's this, been this move to, to uh, undermine Congress and move power to the judiciary and to the administrative state, the mm-hmm. bureaucracy. Members of the federal judiciary Members of the bureaucracy have enormous power today. They are unelected. Um, They serve for life. Um, They're not accountable to people. And that will, the the propensity of our our, uh, democracy to move more toward declarative government, as I call it, is what this. This uh, fight next week will be all about with Judge Barrett, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope everybody will act in a respectful manner, but uh, we're going forward. I can tell you we're going to start those hearings Monday. I know Senator Schumer has said repeatedly that it's – I've heard him say several times that it's not safe, that it's wrong, that it's hypocritical. No disrespect, but I – I've heard him five or ten times say that. I ignored him the first time he said it. Um, uh, we're we're going to go forward. It is the president's right to nominate a person, and it's Congress's right, the Senate's right, to uh, confirm if that's what we wish. And we're going forward. Well, let me let me give an example of the importance of this, uh, because I, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Senator Kennedy. I think that uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett threatens the uh, the left, in that she will abide by the Constitution, meaning that we will not have a um, judicially active court, an activist court that will be doing the bidding for the left. But this past summer, the Supreme Court ruled against Louisiana's abortion clinic regulation provision uh, in June Medical. I actually yes. authored the initial uh, clinic regulation act back in uh, like 1999, and uh, that was struck down. That was struck down by the court um, this summer, and you, uh, you've you responded by introducing legislation, Senate Bill 3226, Pregnant Women's Health and Safety Act. Act. Um, tell our listeners what that bill would do. Well, it's very simple. It would require uh, abortion providers to have admitting privileges at a hospital located within 15 miles of the medical office where the abortion occurs. And the whole purpose of my, uh, of my bill would be to require abortion providers to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to be safe. Uh, my bill would, would, uh, uh, would, would help safety for, for the, not just the, uh, the child, but for, for the mother. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the Supreme Court did strike down Louisiana's similar law. So my, my, my guess is at least the prior composition of the court would strike it down again. But I thought my bill, and I still think my bill, is just a commonsensical um, health measure for, for, for mothers. Um, now, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm biased in this sense. I'm proud of my bias. Um, I, I, I'm uh, pro-life. I believe that life begins at conception. I believe that every life is precious, whether that life is 82 seconds old or 82 years old. Um, I understand that Roe v. Wade is Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. But I don't think that my bill violates Roe v. Wade. Well, and that's what uh, Louisiana thought about their law, and that's where we saw the court, I believe, in my opinion, go the wrong way and strike down a duly enacted law of the state of Louisiana. And uh, and I think the composition, the possible potential composition of the court under uh, with uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett on there as a justice uh, would have a different view uh, of these types of issues, giving more latitude to the states to uh, to protect life. Now, you also have another bill, which I think is extremely important, especially as we, in fact, in just a moment, we're going to be talking with Gordon Chang about China. And, you know, China has had uh, sex selection uh, abortions, essentially, through their one-child policy, which they backed off a little bit, but not much. You have, uh, you're the lead author on uh, Prenda, a bill in the Senate, Senate Bill 182, which would prohibit sex-selected abortions. Yes. I mean, it criminalizes it. I, I think... I can't think of anything worse than than uh, killing a child because you you don't agree with its gender. You, you know, I mean that's well you 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 said it. That that's what China does and did. Um, that that's just not that's just not part of our moral fabric here in America. And I I can't imagine why any one of my, my colleagues in the Senate would not vote for my bill. I'm not naive. I know uh, um, some of my Democratic friends and one or two of my Republican colleagues may not vote for my bill. But the idea that you would you would abort a child because you don't like its sex, I mean, gosh, Tony, what kind of world are we living in? Well, we've become very um, calloused. And, uh, and it's good to have well, we these have. conversations to remind ourselves that all lives, as you said earlier, are pre- are precious because they're created in the uh, image of God. Senator Kennedy, we're out of time, but I want to thank you for joining us. And we're going to revisit um, uh, or visit with you again as the confirmation hearing begins next week. Uh, again, we appreciate you joining us. And thank you uh, for leading out on the issue of life in the United States Senate. Thank you, Tony. Senator John Kennedy of my home state of Louisiana. He was actually a state treasurer back when I was in office there. All right, coming up, we're going to uh, have a conversation with Gordon Chang, who says the Communist Party of China is responsible for Donald Trump coming down with the coronavirus. He's here to explain that next. Also, a uh, David and Goliath victory in Virginia. Pastor takes on the governor and wins. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. So don't go away. More Washington Watch to come. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. 
Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation and the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is uh, at T Perkins. All right, yesterday we heard a uh, sober warning from uh, Congressman Jim Banks of uh, Indiana. He was on the House GOP China Task Force. He was talking about the report that was released last week. The Chinese government is not afraid to use every tool at their disposal, whether it is artificial intelligence, data mining, or the coronavirus, according to my next guest. China expert and author of The Coming Collapse of China, Gordon Chang. You can track Gordon at Gordon G. Chang. Um, Gordon, welcome back to the program. So much, Tony. Um, you said the Chinese Communist Party is responsible for President Trump contracting the coronavirus and should be held accountable. Yes. First of all, Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, took steps beginning in December of last year that he knew or had to know would lead to the spread of the disease beyond China's borders. He, first of all, knew that the virus was highly contagious, but tried to convince the world it was not, and he did that through the World Health Organization. At the same time, he pressured countries not to impose travel restrictions and quarantines on arrivals from China when he was imposing those same travel restrictions and quarantines internally inside China. So he knew that they worked. And after that, uh, they admitted that it was finally contagious, and this took uh, at least five weeks where the disease spread around the world, they then tried to downplay the severity of this. So the United States now has 210,000 dead Americans because China deliberately spread the disease beyond its borders. Of course, the media hasn't wanted to talk about that because that would take the, the focus off of Donald Trump, whom they want to blame for the spread of the coronavirus. Also, you forgot to mention uh, the World Health Organization that provided cover to China, which the president took on as well, and the media did not want to acknowledge their role either. Yes, you know, in, in both of those things that China did, which was spreading the false narrative, the World Health Organization was instrumental in doing that with its January 9th statement and the January 14th tweet. Also, the WHO um, supported Beijing's efforts not to impose those travel restrictions. And we know that uh, the WHO's own professionals were very much against what the political leadership of the organization was doing. So President Trump was absolutely right to defund the organization and to withdraw from it, because although it has many important professionals and doctors who do great work, their work is nullified by the political leadership of the WHO. 
when you look at the international landscape, I mean, a lot of concern, you know, Russia constantly talked about, especially when you look at 2016 election, who poses a greater threat to the 2020 election? Well, I think it certainly is China, um, because China's operations appear to be far larger. First of all, there is a obviously malicious disinformation campaign, which is public. Um, the foreign ministry and the Communist Party's Global Times has been at it, especially since about the first and second week of, this, of February of this year. Also, China's troll operations appear to be larger than China's. So, for instance, Twitter in June took down 174,000 fake Chinese accounts. That's one month, one social media platform, 174,000 fake accounts. That seems to be dwarfing what Russia is doing. Now, of course, this is below the surface, but we've got a lot of information showing that they're using their troll and bot operations against the president. It would appear to me as well that China is more brazen in their activity. Even uh, we've had uh, members of our own team that are connected with uh, uh, re doing research into China that have been targeted here in the States by what appear to be agents of the uh, the Chinese government. Well, China's um, just take one thing. It, it's cyber hacking has gone after organizations um, across American society um, and, of course, against the federal government and defense contractors. And also uh, China's um, information campaigns have, uh, above the board, attacked Americans. And clearly this is um, something where we've got to be so concerned about because China's efforts are so much greater than we've ever seen any other state actor uh, at. So um, right now, this is a China, China, China issue, not a Russia, Russia, Russia one. So, uh, Gordon, I know this is speculation, but now that the president himself has contracted the coronavirus and, uh, and obviously come on the other side of it, I had it earlier, but I'm not 72 years old, um, but the president, good physicians, good, uh, good research going on, he's doing well. Um, does this cause him to double down on uh, on China? I mean, he's already been taking a very aggressive stand. Does this, uh, does this uh, cause him to take an even stronger stand, in your view? I think that it should. Um, what he will actually do is, of course, um, you know, I, I don't know. But you would think that having personally contracted the disease, that that would make this personal. Um, you know, there's a limit to what any leader of a democratic society can do during a hotly contested election campaign, um, especially one where he's far behind uh, the, his challenger. Um, but I, I, I get the sense that President Trump would continue um, along the course that he has charted, um, which is a departure from five decades of failed China policy. He deserves a lot of credit for taking on um, some sacred cows, including the one we just mentioned, the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, it stands to reason that the Chinese Communist Party uh, will be uh, probably doubling down in their efforts to stop the re-election of Donald Trump, knowing that on the other side of this election, uh, he will be uh, probably even more aggressive uh, in his negotiations and his stand with uh, China. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we see this um, because what President Trump has done is he's disrupted this consensus um, supporting uh, China's communist regime. And that's why when you look at what Beijing says in its propaganda outlets and when you look at its troll operations below the surface, they are all directed against the president to unseat him. And that's a vindication of who they want to win on November 3. You're talking about their propaganda tools. You're talking about Hollywood? Or, uh... Well, Hollywood's included in it, but also what they've been saying um, through their foreign ministry spokesmen and through their newspapers and other media outlets. It's all directed against President Trump, and it's in favor of his challenger. Yeah, absolutely. That was a little tongue-in-cheek, but there is truth in it as well. Uh, Hollywood uh, bought and paid for by China these days. Gordon Chang, as always, great to have you on the program, um, and we'll uh, continue to monitor this. Thank you so much, Tony. All right, uh, Gordon Chang. All right, coming up next, a church in Virginia takes on the governor, and they win. The pastor is here to explain next. Don't go away.
Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? In this important season for our nation, it is imperative for Christians to pray. While we have a responsibility to vote for biblical values and stand for truth, our priority should always be to seek the Lord first. Each week until the election, FRC and FRC Action will host a special Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to equip you to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth. We'll have experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders join us for these half-hour programs that will help you see through the fog that's been created by the biased lenses of the mainstream media. While you're there, be sure to take the 2020 Pray, Vote, Stand Challenge and make a commitment to pray for our nation, vote biblical values, and stand for truth during this 2020 election season. To watch the broadcasts and to take the 2020 Pray, Vote, Stand Challenge, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, six months ago, the coronavirus was a mystery disease being marketed as the next plague. And it's serious. It's bad. I've had it. Uh, you know, a lot of people have had it. People have died from it. And, and, and initially, after seeing its rapid spread around the world and the death toll that it had in Italy, the United States was put on alert. You know, one measure taken was to, to slow the spread. You'll remember that. Uh, was to restrict in-person gatherings, including church services, um, you know, for 15 days, then 30 days. And many churches gladly volunteered for this. Mo- in fact, most of them did. Churches found a way through drive-ins and outdoor tent services to continue to serve their congregations and local communities. But unfortunately, you know, 15 days uh, turned into 30 days, which has turned into over six months. And in some places, these restrictions continue, showing a prejudice toward the church as some parts of the country allow no in-person services or very restrictive guidelines, as we discussed yesterday with the Assistant Attorney General, Eric Dryband. But joining me now to talk about this is how some churches are now standing up. Uh, the pastor of Slate Mills Church in Virginia, uh, along with three congregants and other church, took on the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, over church service restrictions, and they prevailed. Pastor Brian Hermsmeyer is here. Pastor Brian, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tony. It's an honor to be with you on your radio show. Well, thank you. Um, I know this this suit was back in May, but explain to our listeners the details of the lawsuit. Well, you did a good job of laying it out there. Uh, you know, we were one of the churches that, at first, we were glad to, you know, abide by any of the restrictions. We shut down, just like many of them. And, you know, we care about our people, so we wanted to be careful. We wanted to take the virus seriously. Uh, but as you said, we realized that as the time went on, we realized there was more going on here, and churches really weren't being treated fairly. So um, we, you know, we just felt that in our heart, and we knew that it wasn't right. And um, so the story goes uh, that uh, my friend Mike Sharman, who's actually the lawyer on the case, works on the street with me, and we had a divine appointment on our lunch break, and we just happened to meet each other walking around the block, and he shared with me that the Lord had laid on his heart to take action. And I heard him out, and I felt like it sounded like a good case, and I said, you know, 
is there any way we could make this uh, in such a way where I could join in? I could sign on. I'm sure you could get more support. And he said, you know, that's a good idea. Let me see what I can do. And that was it. That was where the Lord really took over and kind of pushed it over the edge to get the ball rolling. And the issue here was that the limit on the number of people that could meet, it was different for, you know, restaurants. People could meet uh, capacity-wise. I mean, I see it every day on airplanes. They're packed out. Uh, people are rubbing elbows. But yet people, for three hours, cross-country flights, but they can't sit for 90 minutes, you know, spaced out in a church. And, and, and the, the significance about this is that this allows for congregations um, I believe of, of 250 or less, if you have mask, they're able to meet. Is that is that the essence of the of the agreement that was reached? That's correct. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the results really turned out to be far greater than we intended, which is again the Lord's blessing. Uh, he gets all the credit here because um, first of all, it reaches in the entire state of Virginia, and it is uh, 250, like you said, 250 uh, or less. And um, so all other restrictions are lifted. And, you know, what's really amazing about this is that, um, like you said before, um, certain businesses, certain activities were deemed either essential or non-essential and yet still able to meet. And churches had those uh, additional restrictions carried on throughout the phases. So uh, we now get to see that, uh, at least in Virginia, hopefully across the nation, um, that churches are allowed to meet together and worship for we understand that the Lord calls us to meet. And if I may, I'd just like to say that we believe that church is essential. And I know that we're going to highlight this verse on Freedom Sunday, but uh, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For who promised is faithful? And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And, Tony, I'd just like to say that we do see the day approaching, and it is important and essential to meet together. It's, uh, Pastor Brian, it's more than essential uh, that uh, the, the <laughs> church meet and uh, in, into the broader culture. I think there is, uh, in my in my view, a direct correlation between what's happening in the streets of America, the lawlessness and the fact that our churches were closed, they were shuttered uh, by That's government right. officials. And I, I want to underscore, before we run out of time, here's something very significant. You took a stand on this. It was settled. You didn't, up, you didn't have to go all the way to court. It was settled outside of court. And as you pointed out, I want to make sure our listeners understand this, that by challenging the governor, he came to an agreement which not just affected your county, but the entire state of Virginia. So all of those other churches that were silent benefit because you and the others stood up there, Pastor Brian. So thank you for standing. Well, all I did was say yes. And, Tony, I'd like to say to everybody out there, it's not me. We're not special in any way. We just said yes to the Lord and let him take control. It's obedience makes a big difference. Amen. Uh, Brian Hermsmeyer, thanks so much for uh, joining us and uh, look forward to you being a part of Freedom Sunday next uh, Sunday evening in Chino Hills, California. Amen. All right, folks, don't go away. When we come back, Paul Jaley is going to be joining me. We're going to be talking about uh, the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims stepping on to Plymouth. I'm here, and we're going to talk about it next. Don't go away. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. 
Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The Federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is at T Perkins. All right, as I've uh, been mentioning yesterday and today, we are broadcasting uh, live from Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, where tonight we will be a part of a prayer event. Lord, forgive us. It's uh, being spearheaded by Pastor Carter Conlon, but we'll have a number of people involved in. In fact, there'll be a message from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former uh, Minnesota Congresswoman Michelle Bachman will be a part of it. It starts at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, there'll be an international audience. You can participate in this. Uh, go to TonyPerkins.com, and um, you have links there. Well, watch on a Facebook page. It's, it's many different options of viewing. But I would encourage you, it's from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. to be a part of this. We'll be praying for a return to the foundation of this country. 400 years ago, the the Pilgrims, in fact, 400 years ago in December, somewhere probably, and my next guest will probably give me the exact date because he knows this stuff. He's, He's a local pastor, and he's been leading kind of tours helping people understand the, the history behind the pilgrims and the Christian foundation of America since the 1970s. But uh, back to my point, I think it was about uh, probably December 21st will mark the actual date 400 years ago that they came. Why is that important? Well, joining me t- to talk about this is the executive director of Plymouth Rock Foundation, Dr. Paul Jaley. Paul, welcome to the program. Well, great. Great to have you in Plymouth. Okay, so, uh, well, Paul, was I close? Is it December 21st? Is that around the date of the really the it's 400th the anniversary? Diary from the Pilgrims is December 11, but the calendar was changed by 10 days, so December 21 is officially Forefathers Day. All right, so I got it. How about that? That's because my wife told me. Um, so, Paul, let, let me ask you this. Why is the 400th anniversary significant uh, as we mark the Pilgrims coming to this country? Well, I think it probably in two ways. First of all, the number 400 itself has significance in the Bible. Uh, of course, the uh, children of Israel were in bondage to Egypt for 400 years. Also, the, the Israelites uh, under the Hebrew Republic were the freest, most literate nation in the ancient empires for 400 years before they chose a king. Uh, they couldn't handle that liberty, though. Uh, they couldn't handle the civil government, the self-government that was and the responsibility required. So they ended up uh, doing what was right in their own eyes and, of course, ended up choosing a king. But then you've got the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus. And these 
this 400 years, we can look at it several ways. We can look at it as uh, 10 generations. We can look at it as eight jubilees. Uh, and the number in the Bible is used for expectation and hope, that we can see what has happened after 400 years if we look back 10 generations and see is there hope for the future, if we return, if we continue those same foundations. So I think that's partly the reason why it's significant, but also it's the pilgrim story themselves. They, the pilgrims brought such key points that uh, made our nation unique. And, and that's, I think, one of the key things that Americans have probably forgotten about the pilgrims. There are only footnotes in history books, and uh, the Puritans get all the attention. They came later, and they actually were not as uh, purely scriptural in many of these areas as the pilgrims were. They certainly had the same theology. They had the same desires. And, uh, you know, several things like self-government, the cornerstone of law, the jurisdictional separation of church and state, not to be confused with some of the modern notions today, and and the idea that you, you do not have to be a member of the church to vote in society, and yet both are answerable to God. These concepts, the work ethic, the idea that uh, we should have uh, uh, an economic productivity and a work ethic where your the fruit of your labors is your reward uh, rather than entitlement, all these things are, boy, it's really amazing because after 400 years, they become crystal clear legacies we could use today. Yeah, it's like um, the lessons they learned. We're, we're, we have forgotten them, as you said. They're a footnote of history because we're not we're we're not really teaching them, and so we're now having to almost uh, rediscover those same truths that uh, they did. Now, they were originally not called the Pilgrims. It was sometime later that they were referred to as the Pilgrims, and they were uh, separatists from the Church of England. And when Bradford writes about them in his book of Plymouth Plantation. He really outlines four key reasons for them taking on what was a a very risky uh, voyage to this country. Um, and, of course, we know in that first winter, uh, nearly half of them died. Um, but part of it, what, what really grips me are the two, uh, the last two of the four points that he brings out, one being that they wanted to protect their children from a godless and corrupt culture. They had freedom of worship when they were in Holland, but they, there was the, their surrounding culture was corrupt, and they wanted their children to live in community with godly values. And then f- the fourth is very clear that they wanted to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if they were just, as they said, stepping stones. And that's pretty profound when you look at what their mission and their purpose was. That's right. And, and you know, one of the key points about that is uh, John Robinson, their pastor, because they, for 11, 12 years in Holland, were being taught with him. The church grew to over 300 people uh, at that time. And John Robinson was not unique in his theology necessarily. He was reformed like many of the reformers uh, and a disciple of William Ames and, uh, and the theology that came out of the Oxford and Cambridge sections of England for the Reformation. But John Robinson was a a patriot pastor. We might say the first patriot pastor of America because he taught the pilgrims how to apply the Bible to every area of life. And this was really being pioneered at the time. Books were being written that we can look back to today to see from the Reformers. The Reformation was the most comprehensive revival and awakening we have in history since the time of Christ. And uh, books were written on how to apply the Scriptures to foreign policy, civil government, economics. And Robinson... Is, is ahead of his time. And here the pilgrims are, and they come here to the New World, only about 75 out of that group, and they apply the Bible to every area of life. And so this idea that, um, as you were marking it, uh, the idea of being stepping stones is that multi-generational vision that Robinson had. And uh, I think that it's a clear lesson for pastors today, that if we don't preach on every area of life from the pulpit, applying the scriptures, somebody else is going to do it, and people are going to get false ideas that are in diametrically opposed to the premises of Scripture. And that was what Robinson wanted to avoid. He wanted that body of pilgrims to be unified like a seamless garment on how to apply the Scriptures. And that tiny remnant that got even smaller when they got here, you think about and the pastor didn't even come. Right. So they're well taught. Um, they came here, and that remnant began to establish with much salt and light uh, the entire aspect of New England, of course, and much of that caught on for our nation. And, and that's important when you you unpack the meaning of religious freedom. They came as basically a, a, a 
spiritual body, a church body, but then a body politic, the Mayflower Compact. So they they came here to establish community both from a, a, a biblical standpoint, from a, a, a spiritual standpoint, but also in a, a civic manner as well. That's right, and they developed that over time because there wasn't a whole lot to look back on at that time period. I mean, we can look back now. Uh, we take it for granted that people actually vote in, in nations and whatnot. That was not assumed, and it didn't happen back then. And you often it was controlled either by the state totally or by the church. And for them to pioneer this new concept that um, they were going to let their, as Robinson had said, let your godliness appear, meaning from your character, when you deal with civil government. He even gave them instructions on how to vote. Don't vote because of the way the person looks, and don't vote just because of their rhetoric and their talk. Look back at their character. Look at their record of how they operate. Do they really want the common good? Do they really want what's best for everyone? And, of course, this idea of religious liberty would blossom over time. In their day, it was religious liberty was measured because they, they wanted to have godliness in every part of their society. But over time, they began to recognize that that liberty, they had to trust to God. And really it's going to be how well you train your children over several generations as to whether that lasts. Because you cannot uh, maintain that liberty by law alone. And they knew that, that they couldn't do that. You can't enforce only. You have to have it in the heart or it won't right. be maintained. Uh, Dr. Paul Jaley, um one of the striking aspects of this, I go back to the quote about being stepping stones to for others in such a great undertaking, meaning of spreading the gospel. They, they looked forward. Their focus was on the future and paving a way for the future. And to do that, they faced daily dangers and deprivation. And, and in fact, as I mentioned, the first winter, half of them uh, died right. in this process. So it wasn't about their own comfort, their own gain. And I look to where we are in America today, where we don't really care about the future because we want to protect what is ours. I mean, I, I look at how we're approaching this coronavirus. If the pilgrims would have had the same approach to life as we do today, we wouldn't be here. That's right, and also they faced their own coronavirus, the sickness that killed half of them that first winter. And yet in the midst of that, they had, they had eight or nine people that were healthy, that was all, and those, quote, health care workers risked their lives in ministering to even those who mocked and cursed them. And, you know, and then the, and the strangers and, and also the crewmen said, hey, now we know you're Christians by how you act in the middle of it. And there's no question about that, that they faced it, faced it with courage, faced it with faith, and wanted to move forward. And uh, that's what we need today. We need to look far beyond. Yes, we have all the issues we've got to deal with right before us. But at the same time, we need to look forward and say, listen, if we're faithful now, God always has a remnant, and he will bring forth the kingdom. So, Paul, was it a, a such a fear and a reverence for God that the fear of the elements was lost upon them? Yes, there's no question about that. They knew going into this. They, in fact, some of their friends called this venture an adventure almost desperate uh, because they looked at it and said, gee, what chance do we really have to survive in the wilderness? There are so many ways. We, we could easily, on a small ship like the Mayflower, crossing the Atlantic over cramped in its quarters, uh, and women and children never traveled in that day. I mean, how could, how could you even get here alive? And then if you survive... How do you grow your food? How, how do you make friendly relationships with those around you? Because the testimony previous to the pilgrims was not always great. And these are the things they faces, faced, and they did it because their love of God and their fear of his ways and the leading of God was stronger than all the challenges they faced. And, boy, do we need a baptism of that in the church today. Absolutely. They they had purpose. Their lives had meaning. And it was it was about the future. And again, even if their lives were nothing more than stepping stones. And, and I look at that today. You know, there's uh, you probably know the number better than I do, but I think 30 million Americans can trace their uh, lineage to the pilgrims who came over on the Mayflower. Uh, but when you look, there's literally millions that could trace their hearing of the gospel to the pilgrims and what the way that they paved forward 
the United States of America that has that has sent forth missionaries and created pastors that have proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's right. And uh, one of the reasons I wrote a book for this year, for the 400th anniversary called Journey of Faith, was to re-inspire people with their history that truly it was faith in God that brought them here. It was not uh, riches. It was not sometimes they're just lumped together with other explorers that uh, wanted to come. No, their, their, their goal was not to conquer. Their goal was not to come to simply get rich. Of course, they would have a good profit motive and a, and a work ethic. You have to do that to survive and to bless others. But that, that was their true hunger and desire, and we need that again. That's something that um, uh, we pray that uh, this 400 commemoration um, that's taking place this year, and, of course, they landed in December, so um, really next year is the key first year for them, and a lot of things they left us as a legacy. They're not perfect like anyone else. They'd be embarrassed by monuments being erected in their honor, but they, they're the kind of people we can emulate and our children can look to for good character. So, Paul, uh, your book, Journey of Faith, uh, it's uh, for this special occasion, the 400th anniversary. How can folks get a copy of that? They can go to our website, Plymouth Rock Foundation, which is P-L-Y-M-R-O-C-K.org, plymrock.org. They can order it there. There's also a lot of materials there, and we publish a monthly newsletter right there on the website that people can look at. And, of course, we're documenting what happened 400 years ago month by month all the way through the rest of this year, and we started in January, and then, of course, all through next year. So uh, final question for you, Dr. Jaley. The focus on the pilgrims in this 400th anniversary, are you, are you hopeful that maybe a rediscovery of the spiritual character and purpose of the pilgrims might spark something in America again? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, I was I was asked by one of the town committee members I served with and said, aren't you disappointed that this year has gone the way it was? And I said, well, yeah, this is we the fear of death that many people have, this fear for the COVID, of course, but also the loss of income that the town was expecting for all these events getting canceled, um, the idea that everything is delayed, everything is discouraged. I said, you know, that's exactly what the Pilgrim story is. And if by this delay... We're able to see greater and greater understanding of who they were. They faced the same things, and they overcame it with their faith. And that's what Jesus said. You know, you will overcome the world by your faith. And I I pray that that does spark something in America. And we're always hopeful because God has done it before. When it looks the darkest, the dawn is around the corner. And God is the God of ambush. When it looks like it's all over, God comes through. Amen. You are so right, my friend. Dr. Paul Jaley, thanks so much for joining us. All right. God bless you. All right, folks, we're out of time, but I want to encourage you to join us tonight, eight, uh, 7 p.m. Central Time, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, 7 to 9 Eastern Time. Join us. Go to TonyPerkins.com, and you can follow the links over. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, When you've prepared and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 